Interesting pushback from Mark Bristow on the whole tech resources Glencore situation. There's this headline in the Financial Post, Barrick Gold CEO troubled by nationalistic response to Glencore's bid for tech resources. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, where we are following this, and it's almost strangely silent over here on the whole tech front. I mean, I'm doing searches. I'm not finding anything. It's almost like the Sword of Damocles is hanging above our head, just dangling there as I guess people are waiting for Glencore's next bid, right? And then everything that that implies and suggests and everything. It's interesting. I mean, as Bristow calls it, there's an economic nationalism, so I'm not even sure as far as this political side of this issue is concerned, I'm not sure what the price is. Because I think there's a sense out there, I think there's a fed upedness, and it may not even be fair. It could simply just be the political winds have changed and after, you know, Falcon Bridge and Inco way back when, you know, 15 years ago, I think there's just a sense that like enough is enough. That's just my read on it. It's kind of like a political issue is sort of my take on it. I mean, so Mark Bristow has come out in an interview with the Financial Post saying he is troubled by the economic nationalistic, quote unquote, political rhetoric around Glencore's bid for tech resources. Now, I think from Mark Bristow's point of view, he's probably a little concerned about his own situation. I mean, he was having issues with Papua New Guinea. He has a lot of partnerships. I believe Tanzania, where they're actually quite generous. You could argue, I mean, the impression that I have is that they are actually fairly pioneering in the way that they're sharing the wealth, so to speak, with the local community, truly partnering with local communities. So I don't think we should simply dismiss this as you know, Barrick working in their own self-interest. But here's just a quote here from the Financial Post, Mark Brissot. We are proudly Canadian and we are desperate to grow in Canada. But at the same time, we do big deals around the world. And imagine if our host countries around the world denied us the ability to access their markets and industries. I guess it's a sign of the times as we sort of become more inward looking and nationalistic. So what I would say is it's not just us. As we're going to see here, let's actually turn to it right now. I mean, Mexico has just approved a set of laws and mining reform where they are reducing the concessions of miners to 30 years from 50. And they had originally proposed 15 years. We see what's happened in Chile. Okay, it's debatable whether that's nationalization, but we see what's going on there. So, I mean, I guess what I would say to Mark Brissow is, are we going to be the suckers here that are still adhering to a policy that doesn't exist anymore? You know, are we going to pretend like there is no resource nationalism and that everybody's playing by the same rules? Because what I see out here is it's it's a global phenomenon. We see it in African countries. We're seeing it all over the place. We're seeing it with this rerouting of supply chains. And this is copper. And it sounds like it's not just the property, you know, QB2 in Chile, it sounds like there are also Canadian properties. I mean, it's an interesting question. If this was all based on some property in Chile, then one does have to ask oneself, you know, are we being nationalistic about someone else's copper, you know, that they lost, you know, 20 years ago? Maybe that's a out-of-bounds point at this point, but it did cross my mind here. 
But there are properties in Canada here. There are assets in Canada and there is an operation in Canada. So that is how I would respond. And I was also thinking, you know, Barrick is searching for copper pretty aggressively from my understanding. And they have pretty significant copper assets as well. And I would be tempted to ask Mark Brissot is, would he be willing to sell Barrick's copper at the same valuation? I don't know. Like if he would, then I think it's all fair. And that's, you know, then I think it's a maybe a fair point, even though I'd argue maybe like the political situation has changed. And I can understand why he doesn't want the political situation to change. I, I mean, on paper, in theory, markets are still open, but one has to wonder in practice if this is true. I mean, we're seeing jurisdictions like Chile, you know, Mexico. These aren't, you know, remote, you know, quote unquote, banana republics here. These are tried, tested and true mining countries, you know, with deep traditions in the mining industry. These aren't newcomers to the scene here. And so we have to ask ourselves, are, are we the only ones playing according to an old rule book? And that's kind of the impression I would get. Like, I mean, I think Mark Bristow is a very knowledgeable individual. Now, interestingly, he was recently asked whether Barrick was interested in taking over tech. And I believe he said that, you know, Barrick is not interested in coal and that they actually have quite a bit of debt which is something that has not come up, the debt side of things. So that is interesting. So in a sense, from a valuation perspective, Barrick didn't seem very enthusiastic, or Mark Bristow didn't seem very enthusiastic about the situation. Now, I also got this comment on Twitter from Bismarck, who also weighed in with a different view on this whole situation. And shout out to Bismarck, catching up on a few Northern Miner episodes, and I think it's wrong to argue tech is a quote-unquote Canadian company, without mentioning the large Chinese ownership. It makes it clear that it really isn't an issue of national security, and it seems biased to position it as such without sharing that. I love your content, though. That was just an observation of mine in the episode. I believe it is an incorrect narrative that everyone from the Kivels to Poilivier are trying to portray. The Chinese ownership is very concerning. Much respect to you, my friend. Well, thank you for the kind comments, Bismarck, and it's an interesting point. I mean, if there is a large Chinese ownership, I mean, the first company that comes to mind is Ivanhoe Mines. I mean, they have a huge Chinese ownership, so I don't even know. Is that considered a Canadian mine? I think they're at 51%, if I remember right. You know, so, I mean, these are fair points here. And like, who owns these things? And I guess the question we might rephrase is how Canadian is this with all this economic nationalism at stake? Now, what we do know currently is the Kievels own a controlling share, which they are going to supposedly relinquish in the coming like five or six years, from my understanding. But as it stands, if the Kievels have that controlling share, then I think we can call it a Canadian company. If you control it, it's basically yours. And let's not forget, very early on, the first argument that we were given by Norm Kievel at Tech, the guy who owns the controlling shares, is this is a Canadian company, if memory serves. And let's not forget, you know, Pierre Lassonde who also wanted to help out by bidding for the coal assets. So it, once they split, which never happened, never went to a vote. Put it this way, 
I think Mark Bristow brings up a legitimate point in theory. In practice, I'm not sure. And I say it with all respect because I have a lot of respect for Mark Bristow, and I think he's one of the great leaders of the mining industry in these deals that he's making with other countries, paving the way in a lot of ways. But what I, I do wonder is what world is he living in? Because what I see over here is economic nationalism is not something that's unique to Canada or us just being, quote unquote, inward looking. I don't think that's it. I think it's look at the game board here, look at the chessboard here, and we're seeing it kind of across the boards, and we may be entering a time of war for all we know. And so we want to have as firm of a grip as we possibly can on metals like copper, which, I mean, here's a headline for you. You want a, you want a headline to turn your head today? Copper mine flashes warning of quote-unquote huge crisis for world supply. So if we're heading towards a quote-unquote huge crisis, I'm kind of back to this idea. We kind of want to keep as firm of a grip as we can on any major copper assets. And I understand from Barrick's point of view that, hey, this could screw up deals for us in the future, in the big picture. I think that's probably very possible, right? But I guess what I would say is, do we live in that world anymore? Another way of putting it, are we the only ones living in that world if that's how we're thinking? Is anybody else thinking that way? And can we afford to think that way when everybody else is thinking another way? Let me get you this quote. It's Doug Kerwin, kind of a renowned geologist, and he is discussing the Oyutolgoy mine. This is like a Bloomberg article. And before the quote, I'll just read the paragraph before. As demand for copper surges, supply is increasingly likely to come from mines like this one on the arid steppe. Expensive, technically complex, outside traditional copper jurisdictions, and operating under the eye of governments jealously guarding their natural resources. And here's Doug Kerwin. Quote, there's a huge crisis. There's no way we can supply the amount of copper in the next 10 years to drive the energy transition and carbon zero. It's not going to happen. There's just not enough copper deposits being found or developed. So are we going to start saying then, oh, you know, this economic nationalism thing isn't happening? Like, it feels like a blindfold to me. Like, so I understand and I respect you know, Mark Bristow's point, and I think it's I think it's a valid point, and I frankly think it should be added into the debate. But I guess what I would say is like, are we living in that world anymore? And my impression is no. I think a lot has changed in the last two years, and we're we're in a much more heightened geopolitical climate, uh, much more tense. We are basically bifurcating the world economy to a certain degree. A major producer of commodities has basically been canceled in, in the form of Russia. You know, many uh, aggressive war hawks in the U.S. would probably like to cancel China. So I just think we're in a different paradigm geopolitically and that we can't afford to kind of keep going. To me, like this whole idea of we're going to ignore economic nationalism and that it's us just looking inward and that, you know, we're turning away from the world is kind of not seeing the world as it is. So anyways, we have a ton to look forward to. And on this whole theme, I'm very happy to welcome for the first time to the show, 
John DeMaio, CEO of Graphics Technologies. We have an excellent discussion. He's incredibly knowledgeable on graphite and his companies. One is based out of Hong Kong. The other is based in the U.S. He is CEO of Graphics Technologies and president of the Graphics Group. One is based out of Hong Kong, one out, out of the United States, and they are concerned with processing. They are midstream, as he says, so a very front row seat on critical minerals and processing and supply chains and what is possible and what is not and whether governments and industry are doing what they need to do in order to achieve very aggressive goals by Western politicians to reroute the supply chains. Not an easy feat, as he's saying, but he is optimistic but he's also realistic. So it's a very interesting interview. He's a very good speaker. And so I'm thrilled to have him on and look forward to having him on again. Uh, it's just knowledge, you know, based on real experience, not reading papers, but out in the world doing real things with real people, making real deals. And so he is the real deal. And so we are thrilled to have him on. So welcome everybody. And finally, before we turn to the news, where we have a ton of interesting content here today, there is a new Northern Miner Global Mining Symposium coming up on May 25th. Simply go to events.northernminer.com to register your interest. And this edition will be taking place in Toronto, Ontario. Just go to events.northernminer.com to register your interest or become a sponsor. And with that, if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host this podcast. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, here we go. Mexican Senate expeditiously approves set of laws mining reform. This is Reuters via mining.com. The Mexican Senate approved in an express session on Saturday a package of laws including two constitutional reforms and a new mining law rebuked by the Mining Chamber and Canada. Representatives of the president's Marina Party and its allies nearly unanimously and with little debate approved the laws in a fast-track process without opposition legislators present. Legislators convened outside the chamber's usual voting location after the opposition occupied the chamber to try to prevent the session. The two constitutional reforms approved by the Senate in the early hours of Saturday morning involved lowering the age to be a legislator and a secretary of state to 18 from 21 and prohibiting perpetrators of gender violence from participating in elections. So you wonder if that's all a big distraction for this. The mining law shortens concessions in the mining sector to 30 years from 50, tightens water extraction permits, and requires some mining profits to be returned to local communities, among other modifications. President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador promoted the initiative, but it originally proposed reducing concessions to 15 years from 50. Lopez Obrador has not granted any new mining concessions since he took office in the world's top silver-producing country in late 2018. Not a single new mining concession. He has argued that too many permits were granted by previous governments to extract the country's resources, which include gold and copper. The Canadian Ministry of Commerce expressed its concern this week that the new mining legislation could affect Canadian investment in Mexico's mining industry, where multiple Canadian companies operate. The National Mining Chamber 
Camamex has warned such reforms could cost the country some $9 billion in investments and up to 420,000 jobs. And we have another story here, this time by Henry Lazenby at Mining.com. Canadian juniors in Mexico were blindsided by a new mining regime on April 29th after the Mexican Senate rushed through a contentious bill that experts say will deter investment. Mining entrepreneur Ross Beatty, who's made a career of investing in high-risk jurisdictions across Latin America, including Mexico, tells the Northern Miner the aggressive move by the government is, quote, extremely damaging, end quote, to Mexico's mining industry. Quote, it's a very significant negative to Mexico's previously good investment climate for mining, end quote. And continuing with Beatty, quote, they are hostile to the industry and utterly uncompetitive with other mining jurisdictions. It's a real shock. Beatty believes that responsible mining by Mexican and foreign mining companies has been a massive boon to many communities in Mexico that rely on the jobs, demand for services, and community benefits mining provides. Quote, these will dry up because the new rules are so draconian and hostile to new investment. In his view, it will spell the end of mining investment in Mexico until the laws are modified to make them more competitive with other mining countries. So, Ross Beatty is not impressed. Moving on to Argentina, a chamber of mines in Argentina's Salta province speaks out against lithium nationalization. This is by a staff writer at the Northern Miner. And again, the word nationalization, you know, it's tempted to put it in quotes or something like that. But let's take a closer look here. The Chamber of Mines in Argentina's Salta province is pushing for the South American country to move away from proposals to nationalize its lithium resources. In an interview with the local newspaper Nuevo Diario, Facundo Huidobro, a member of the chamber's board of directors, said that private investment must be protected and that it would be unconstitutional for Argentina to follow the steps of Chile and Bolivia when it comes to the ownership of lithium resources. And here's the quote from Huidobro, who told the newspaper, quote, investments come over from countries like Canada, which have been doing this for years. If you were to ask me what's the most important thing for the future of mining, I would say that it is to avoid changing the rules that we already have. Investments need long-term predictability. This is how Salta has grown in the last few years. In Argentina, there are 50 to 60 companies that are listed in the stock market, and 60% of them have the intention to come to Salta. So you just see how it's everywhere. And here's another story, this time from Globe and Mail mining reporter Niall McGee on Mining.com. Ottawa clamps down on China's critical minerals foray, but not prospecting. Lone Wolf Michael Tremblay is one of Canada's most successful mining prospectors. In the 80s, he discovered the Borden Lake Gold Deposit in northern Ontario, which was subsequently developed into a mine. Over four decades, he's headed into Ontario's bush on countless occasions, amassing 10,000 mining claims and knows better than anyone there's no guarantee of ever making a cent in the prospecting business. About a dozen years ago, Mr. Tremblay woke to find a good chunk of his claims hemmed in on all sides by China Metallurgical Exploration Corporation. Quote, they tied into every claim I owned. They were sticking up around all my projects. They surrounded everything I had, end quote. CME is controlled by Zhengguan International Mining, a Chinese state-owned enterprise. With the huge coffers of China's communist government at its disposal, CME can afford to stake vast tracts of land in Ontario and sit on them indefinitely, paying just $400 a claim to the province annually to keep each one active. Quote, I don't like the idea of foreign entities just walking in and buying whatever they want, particularly the Chinese. They don't play fair. There should be more restrictions on them than there is, which is basically nothing. 
While there is now a virtual ban on acquisitions of Canadian critical minerals producers by state-owned Chinese companies, at the prospecting stage, there are almost no restrictions at all. After filling out basic paperwork, passing a rudimentary knowledge test, and paying nominal fees, foreign firms with ties to authoritarian regimes are allowed to buy claims across Canada. And finally, another quote here from Tremblay, quote, a lot of times companies that are staking are just numbered companies. So you have no idea what their background is. So it's interesting. This whole prospecting issue is also an issue in Canada here. Listen to this. Richard Fadden, the former director of the Canadian Security Intelligence Service and a former national security advisor to Prime Minister Stephen Harper and Justin Trudeau, says Ottawa should know who is prospecting, where they are prospecting, and what they own, and if they have any ties to state-owned enterprises. Quote, at an absolute minimum, we need almost perfect transparency when foreign countries come into this country and start prospecting. Well, now CSIS is getting in the game. Like, if you had any doubts that we are kind of in a geopolitical terrain here, CSIS is weighing in on prospecting. So that is a pretty interesting report. You can read the whole thing on mining.com. Here's a few headlines here. U.S. is vulnerable to China's lock on key minerals, Biden aid says. John Podesta, senior White House advisor for clean energy innovation and implementation, said, quote, quite frankly, we're in a vulnerable position. We can't be in the position Europe was in front of the invasion of Ukraine. That would put the U.S. at the mercy of a country that has the potential to use its lock on supply chains to hold politically hostage decisions by governments. So, I mean, I'm just seeing it on all sides here. Just another headline here, U.S. to speed up South-32's Hermosa manganese zinc project. So, you know, it's amazing how quickly things change. And this is part of a FAST-41 process, which is U.S. government legislation aimed at promoting faster development of clean energy assets and other infrastructure. And so 32 Chief Executive Officer Graham Kerr said, quote, the inclusion of Hermosa as the first mining project added to the FAST-41 process is an important milestone that recognizes the project's potential to strengthen the domestic supply of critical minerals in the U.S., So stay tuned for our interview coming up, which has some great insights. And look at this almost mirror story here. Rio Tinto under, quote, immense pressure to develop U.S. copper project. This is Reuters via mining.com. And Rio Tinto is under, quote, immense pressure, end quote, from the U.S. government to develop its resolution copper project in the U.S., given the copper it holds accounts for a quarter of all U.S. reserves, its chair Dominic Barton said on Thursday. Barton told shareholders at Rio Tinto Australia's shareholders meeting, quote, we are getting immense pressure to proceed because of the copper reserves that are there. And he clarified that pressure was coming from, quote, parts of the U.S. government, he said on a media call following the meeting, as U.S. senators seek to get copper put on the U.S. critical minerals list, which would allow copper projects access to tax breaks. And CEO Jacob Stausholm of Rio Tinto said, we are engaging and we are not making any conclusions, but we are going through a process right now. It's not just a matter of government approvals, but it's also a matter of us convincing ourselves it's the right thing to do. And look at this. The U.S. Forest Service is set to approve a land swap between the U.S. government and Rio Tinto that would allow the mining giant to develop resolution, but indigenous groups object to the transfer and contest ownership of the land. It's all coming to a head here. Everybody, uh, Tesla breaks ground on massive Texas lithium refinery. So there is a refinery going up in Texas. The headlines are coming fast and furious here, aren't they? And here is a quote from Elon Musk. As we look ahead a few years, a fundamental choke point in the advancement of electric vehicles is the availability of battery grade lithium. 
And Texas Governor Greg Abbott said, quote, Texas wants to be able to be self-reliant, not dependent on any foreign hostile nation for what we need. We need lithium. So, you know, it's kind of like I've always been saying in this business, it's all one big story, just different facets. Look at this. Malaysia gives Linus extension to keep Rare Earths unit open. So they have been given an extension just yesterday, six months to get its rare earth plant in line with environmental requirements. And finally, just a headline here, Newcrest is supporting a $19.5 billion takeover by Newmont. That came out May 3rd. So that is looking quite positive for that M&A over there. And finally, as we go into metal prices here, platinum price surges as speculators bet supply will run short. I mean, are you seeing a common theme here? It's like, if I had to distill everything that's happening here, it is just a scramble for resources. I don't know how else to put it. I mean, and here is your final headline. China's gold splurge reaches sixth month as reserves rise again. Those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, let's just take a quick look at the 10-year bond, which is yielding 3.488%. That is 0.05% lower than last week. So continuing to trade kind of boringly in this range here significantly. And turning to precious metals, gold is back above $2,000 an ounce at $2,031.27 per ounce. That is $49 higher then last week, silver is also higher at $25.48 per ounce. That is $0.47 cents higher than last week. Platinum is $26 higher at $1,076.47 per ounce. And palladium is also higher at $1,555.86 per ounce. That is $103 higher than last week. So all precious metals higher here. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading a penny higher at $3.92 per pound. Iron ore is trading six cents lower at $103.55 per ton. Aluminum is trading two cents lower at $1.05 per pound. Lead is trading three cents lower at 96 cents per pound. Nickel is trading higher at $11.09 per pound. That is 11 cents higher than last week. And tin is a penny lower at $11.82 per pound. Cobalt is unchanged at $15.84 per pound. And lithium finally turns the corner at $26.38 per kilogram. That is up $1.45 from last week after collapsing from $51. It is now at $26. Maybe turning a corner here. And uranium is at $53.70 per pound. That is $1.60 higher than last week. So a little bit more movement there. And zinc is two cents higher at $1.22 per pound. So interesting setup here. Precious metals higher. Industrial metals edge lower with notable exceptions being zinc, nickel, and I guess copper at a penny higher here. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome John DeMaio to the Northern Miner podcast for the very first time. He is CEO of Graphics Technologies and president of the Graphics Group. And John gives an excellent interview 
on the practicalities and the realities of rerouting the supply chain and how likely it is really for us to reroute at the very aggressive targets that are being suggested. He remains optimistic, but he points out there are many challenges. I'll let you hear what John has to say. I hope you enjoy it, and I'll see you on the other side. Joining us today, I'm very pleased to welcome John DeMaio, CEO of Graphics Technologies and President of the Graphics Group to the Northern Miner Podcast for the very first time. John, welcome to the show. Adrian, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to it. Well, I'm looking forward to it too. And it's very nice of you to make some time while you're in New York City visiting there. And so tell us a little bit, just for our listeners, just very briefly, if possible, you know, what is Graphics Technologies and what is the Graphics Group? Sure. Well, Graphics Group is uh, is our parent company. Graphics Technologies is our U.S. subsidiary and European spearhead, if you will. So Graphics is a multinational technology company, primarily focused on the processing of natural graphite and synthetic graphite for use as battery anode material in primarily lithium-ion batteries for electric vehicles and battery energy storage. We operate in what's called the midstream, so we don't actually do the mining. We take the output from the graphite mines and we refine that graphite further into, again, imparting the qualities and the shape and structure that is required for use in those um, lithium ion batteries. Fascinating. So it's the processing of the graphite that you're primarily concerned with. Absolutely. And in the graphite ecosystem, if you will, the midstream processing, what we do is really where most of the value, both from a performance perspective and from a commercial perspective, is added, is in the midstream. Unlike some of the other uh, minerals that are talked about in the EV realm, like lithium, cobalt, nickel, manganese, et cetera, in those cases, a fair amount of value is, is achieved in the extraction and the mining. But graphite, really, again, most of the value is is added during that midstream processing. Fascinating. And so where do you do the processing then? So for the last 10 years, we've been operating commercially in China. We're not a Chinese company specifically. We are a Hong Kong-based company. So we're considered a foreign-owned enterprise in China. But we have operations in China, much like you know many of the other U.S. companies, primarily because the largest graphite deposit in the world is in the northeast province of China. So our you know, processing facilities have been in operation, like I said, for the last 10 years. And that gives us a very strong experience base. So we're one of you know, the top 10 in the world as far as volume of production. We produce right now 10,000 metric tons of refined graphite. And we're expanding that in the current location to 30,000 tons over the next 18 months, and then 55,000 over the next three years. But that's really to serve you know, and service the much more mature ecosystem that exists in Asia, right? They're 15 years ahead or more in the electric vehicle world. So that previous volume and, and the forecasted volume that'll be produced there will be consumed there. At the same time, we have announced our first plant here in the States in Warren, Michigan, 
which will produce 15,000 tons. And that should come online probably Q2 of, of 2024. And then we're also looking at larger facilities to bring online in the next several years. And the reason being that the demand picture outside of China, outside of Asia, is, as, as we all know, it's a lot of projections for extreme high numbers of electric vehicles, a lot of commitments for going all electric by 2035, by 2050, et cetera. So, you know, whether or not those, those milestones can be hit, what is reflected by that proliferation of vehicles, and that's not even taking into account battery storage, just the amount of batteries that's going to be needed to, that are going to be needed to, to provide that volume, they all require graphite. That's why we're expanding, you know, into, again, U.S. and Europe to meet the demand for all these, these batteries. Well, what I love about having you here is you have a front row seat on this kind of big issue of, you know, critical minerals and supply chains and everything. I mean, there's almost so many questions I want to ask you. I mean, very quickly, before we move to supply chains, I've heard that China has like a, an extraordinary amount of the graphite that is being processed is like, it's something like 90, 95%. Is that Accurate? That is correct. So, you know, the, the processing of graphite, we can think about it as a call it a two stage process. You know, the first stage is called shaping and purifying. Now, it sounds like two stages, but they're usually lumped together. So, shaping and purifying, which creates a product known as spherical purified graphite, and then a finished process, which is referred to as coating, right? Pitch coating or uh, coating. And that end product is coated spherical purified graphite, which is technically the anode material primarily for use in EVs and uh, battery energy storage systems. So you're right. The first part of that processing, the shaping and purifying, 90 to 95, 95 or more, 90 to 95% is done in China. The coating process, about 60 to 70% still done in China, but there are other locations where like Korea, Japan, uh, et cetera. And in fact, our plant in Michigan, our first plant will be a pitch coating plant. So yes, China has had the monopoly, if you will, almost uh, exclusively for that first stage processing. Okay, excellent. So we hear a lot of talk about rerouting supply chains, particularly for these critical minerals. And sometimes the timelines are quite, you know, soon. And so I guess my question for you, I mean, you're kind of perfectly positioned, at least on the graphite side of things. Where are we as far as rerouting these supply chains and, and how realistic are the timelines that you're seeing uh, that are being kind of requested by politicians, say, in the Western world? Yeah. And, you know, I, I won't take up too much time with this, but my own personal background, I, I've been in this, what I'll call the energy transition space, I always say long before it was called that. And I only bring that up because I have seen a lot of efforts, a lot of initiatives and a lot of programs that set lofty goals, lofty ambitions. Back in the day when I was in solar, you know, it was 50% of electricity by 2020 or 2030 or 2050. And well-intended, you know, initiatives, but a lot of them fell short in one way or another, right? Either a disconnect between political will and implementation strategy right, uh, within the, the entity itself, whether that be a city or a university or, you know, a government, or 
the disconnect between, again, the motivation and the ability to either fund it or, or make it, you know, uh, adoptable, right? So we remember back in the, in the days of solar, solar projects didn't always work unless they had serious incentives to make them work, right? And as those incentives dropped off, solar started to, you know, to, to wane a little bit. I bring it up only to say that this effort is really, I've never seen the motivation line up with legislation, legislation line up with funding. And by and large, there is acceptance. There's widespread acceptance. Yes, there's there's hurdles and there's resistance and there's reluctance and there's range anxiety and you know there's overambitious maybe expectations. But I think those, in my humble opinion, I think those things will get worked out as long as everybody stays the course. And when I say everybody, I mean lawmakers, industry, the car companies, et cetera. Everybody's got to want this to happen. And I, I feel that that's the case, right? So what I always refer to as aggressive collaboration really needs to happen. It can't be the classic lawmakers, industry, vendor, supplier relationships. That paradigm has to shift to make this work. Couple of questions then related to this then. I mean, you're creating a, a processing plant of graphite of some kind in, I believe you said 2026. Is that going to be the soonest, in a sense, we're going to have graphite processing, say, in North America, for example? And is that lining up with the expectations that you're seeing from industry and government? Um, great question. Uh, 2024, actually, for us in, uh, in Warren, Michigan. We have other plants that we're targeting 2026. So there, in the graphite space, you know, there are a couple of players that are operating or you know, soon to be operating in North America. Uh, CIRA Resources down in Louisiana. CIRA has a mine in Mozambique, Africa, and they have a uh, midstream processing facility that is coming online. And I believe they're targeting 24 as well for, you know, their first uh, production. And then a couple of years later for an expansion. Nouveau Monde up in Canada has a mine also. And they have a secondary transformation or a refining uh, process that they're both of which are not quite online yet, but I think they're hopeful to bring those online soon as well. Now, with that being said, those operations are slated to bring in, you know, I think it's 11,000 tons in the case of Sierra going to 45, unless that's changed, I don't know. And then Nouveau Monde, I'm not sure what their volume is, but say it's 20 or 25 against a backdrop of demand that looks like to be four to 500,000 tons over the next five to seven years. We have a long way to go to build out that, that muscle, that processing muscle. And we're just talking about graphite right now. So, you know, just the, the physical mechanism to get that done, right? Because there's, you know, these plants don't spring up overnight, right? They're, they're industrial processing facilities and they have, you know, they need regulatory approval. You need um, physical, you know, infrastructure. You need power. You need, you know, water. You need land. You need workforce, right? So there's a lot of of moving parts that go into building out this this infrastructure. And here, here again, when I go back to my quote unquote aggressive collaboration, and you'll hear this from the mining operations as well. We're talking, you know, for graphics, we're talking about midstream. We have control pretty much, you know, if we can get raw material, we can create a finished product. For the folks, you know, the companies that are looking at bringing the raw materials online, now we're talking about mines in locations that 
A, may or may not have the minerals available. If they have them, they might not be that easy to extract, i.e. costly, et cetera. And again, if those minerals are there, what's the regulatory environment? How fast can these things come online? It's typical for mining operations to take 10 plus years to come online and hundreds of millions of dollars. So that brings up, and I'm not being a naysayer here. I started out by saying this is going to happen. You know, question is how fast and how much, you know, what do we all need to do? So the other kind of element here is that, again, these are, you know, companies for profit with shareholders. You don't just build hundreds of millions of dollars of speculative industrial facilities. You need to have a customer base that's that's willing to give you forward commitments. And there's a wrinkle when it comes to battery technologies in that, you know, acquiring critical minerals is not the same as acquiring like leather for car seats or, you know, a uh, tires, right? With a specification and the vendors can hit that specification. In the case of these critical minerals, there's a pretty long and arduous testing protocol that has to be done to make sure that the material will work. We're talking about electrochemical, you know, magic that happens inside those batteries. And battery tech companies are trying to optimize the performance. And that's, you know, that, that brings in people way smarter than me, right? You know, I think uh, some of these battery companies have hundreds of PhDs that are extracting maximum value out of these minerals to get the holy grail, fast charging and long range, et cetera. So I know I'm monologuing here a lot, but there's a lot of inputs that go into making you know, for industry to make decisions to expend this this capital and build out this this infrastructure. So yes, it's a great the timelines that are that are out there are very aggressive. But I don't take that as a that's not defeatist. That just means if we want to do it fast, let's pull together on the rope. Listen to each other, right? I think legislators need to listen to industry more than they normally do. Beautifully put. And so I want to get to the battery tech in a second, but just like, I mean, this huge shortfall, at least it seems to me that is growing between the graphite that's going to be produced, that's good to go, that's ready and processed. And the amount that the industry needs uh, sounds like a, a huge shortfall. So is that, in from your understanding, is that like a commodity issue, like the extraction issue, or is it a processing issue, or is it both? It's, it's, it's both. You can't have the processing without the extraction. And, you know, the good news for graphite, let's be optimistic now, because I may, I may have come across as sounding pessimistic, even though I am, I'm definitely not. There's plenty of graphite on the planet outside of even China. Granted, it's a huge deposit in China, but there's graphite in many, many countries. Canada, for example, we have some in, we have some in the U.S., right, that we found in, in Alabama, namely. But Brazil... Yeah, again, South, Southern Africa countries, Mozambique, Tanzania, Madagascar, Ukraine has significant uh, deposits. So there's a lot of graphite that exists. It hasn't been tapped into in the past. I go back to my earlier point. It hasn't been that profitable of a thing to mine, right? So again, from the mining perspective, spending huge amounts of capital for a product that, that doesn't command a high premium hasn't made that much sense. It's making a lot more sense now. And as we see, 
there are a lot more mines, you know, uh, starting to come online. So that that's a great sign. Um, on the processing front, there aren't that many companies that do it that do it at at commercial scale. So I mentioned we do ten thousand tons. It took us a couple of years to perfect that. Uh, you're dealing with microscopic particles, anywhere from six to twenty microns, and they have to be shaped right into as close to spherical as you can, and then purified. So we we acquire uh, output from the mines at somewhere between ninety four to ninety six percent carbon content of uh, purity. And we take that, you know, for use in an electric vehicle, it's got to be almost 100%. So 99.95. So we have to purify that, strip out whatever the impurities are to get to that. So when you're doing that at scale, it's it's part art and part science. And it's not something that there is a barrier to entry to do what we do. And that's good for us from a competitive standpoint, but it also adds an additional kind of um, twist into this domestication effort, particularly because many of the other companies that do what we do do have strong ties back to China. You know, we don't. We have, we operate independently. We have, I always say, ability with agility because we're not beholden to the government there. We have our own IP, so we don't have any licensing issues. So we can move to a location like Warren without any hindrances. Right. And in fact, you know, in our particular case, we are looking at ways to to further establish a U.S., you know, a standalone U.S. Um, a U.S. entity just to you know, eliminate any of the challenges that go with, you know, with, with uh, having operations overseas. So can you speak a little bit uh, just briefly, if possible, can you speak a little bit about just the technology and what is graphite doing today? Like we've spoken about graphite and everything, you know, the supply, the processing. I mean, it's pretty, I mean, I think we've all seen news articles over the years of this 2D material or whatever the case is. I mean, what exactly are we doing with graphite right now? Yeah. Well, in, in, in the case of, of battery technology, if you think about a battery simplistically, and I mean, there are different form factors, but in a Tesla, for example, your typical Model S, you have about 1,800 or more of these, what look like overgrown flashlight batteries, right? So they're cylindrical, they have the, the positive and negative end. There are four basic components. There's a cathode and an anode, which are the electrodes, right? So cathode positive, anode negative, the electrons go one way during charge, the other way during discharge. And then the other two basic components are the electrolyte, which is the medium, and a separator, to obviously keep the two things separate. So graphite, makes up 95 to 99% of the anode of a battery, right? And what people don't often realize is that in a lithium ion battery, it can be 15 times more graphite than lithium, right? So it's the largest component by volume and weight in a battery is graphite, right? So your thousand pound Tesla battery could have three, 400 pounds of, of graphite in it. So it's a significant player. And you know, what it does, it stores the charge and then it discharges, you know, during a load, if you will. And it does its job very well, right? It's very, it's, it's stable, it's inert, it's natural. I mean, it's, it's got a lot of things going for it. Now there is, you know, there is a synthetic graphite product that we probably, you know, should talk about as well. Now that is just like it says, it's a synthetic graphite. It's produced from petroleum coke, right? Either needle coke, but it's a petroleum We'll call it a byproduct. The thing is, 
the refining, the processing of synthetic graphite is very energy intensive. It runs at very high temperatures. And again, we're using its, its feedstock as a petroleum-based product. So it has some challenging ESG footprints associated with it, but it does have some good performance characteristics. You know, one of the challenges, if you will, with graphite, synthetic or natural, when you charge it, it tends to swell a little bit. And you can't, you don't want to have swelling inside a confined space like a battery cell and then have 1,800 of those. You know, if you have a swelling issue, that's where you can get cracks, et cetera, and then you've got a safety problem. So synthetic performs a little better on the swelling side of things. And for that, the price you pay is its ESG you know, footprint. So we have research and development going on to see what we can do to contain that swelling even better for natural graphite and thereby, you know, again, use a natural product that at the end of its life in the use of an EV battery, graphite can be recycled or even if it can't, which it can, but even if you choose not to, it can go back to its original state. You know, uh, it did come out of the ground. It can go back into the ground as long as it hasn't been contaminated with anything else. So it's really a, a, a wonderful product. There's really no substitute for it. Lithium ion technology has been around since the 70s, and graphite has been the anode material of choice, you know, the whole time and still is. There is discussion about silicon anodes. Silicon has some great electrical properties. Silicon does swell to four times its size uh, under charge. So that's a big condition to, to deal with before that can be you know, used as a quote-unquote replacement for graphite. But we will see silicon additives play more of a role moving forward. And I think everybody accepts the fact that, that we will see some anode share go to silicon additives and, and other additives. But the growth plan for natural graphite is to increase as far as anode share goes over time. So again, from a, a forward-looking perspective, graphite, you know, if you believe that electrification is going to happen, electrification needs batteries, batteries need graphite. I love how you simplified it there for us all at the end, because it was getting quite complex there. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a complex matter. So just as we wrap up, a final question for you, John. What do you want the world to know about graphite, maybe critical minerals, supply chains? Like, you know, what have we not kind of said here that, you know, boil it down for us? Like, what should we all know yeah. that you can impart to us here? I, I would say that graphite and the critical minerals, they're part of a, a, a real solution, right? Electrification of, of mobility and energy storage is the answer. And, and you hear... Some of the um, detractors talk about, well, you know, the mining operations of these minerals is, is energy intensive and it's dirty, et cetera. If you compare on a realistic basis what it takes not only to extract fossil fuels, right, then to move them. So you, you drill them offshore, you ship them by boat. That takes energy to do that, leaves a footprint. You know, that you bring it to a refinery, huge energy expended to turn it into gasoline. You build internal combustion vehicles, a lot of energy used to do that. Then you burn gas the whole time that car is alive. The footprints are, are radically, I mean, an electric vehicle footprint from, from start to finish is only about, and I've seen some studies, about 25% of the footprint of a fossil. So, you know, is there an ultimate solution where, you know, we have... Vehicles run on, on air, hydrogen fuel cells, 
possibly, right? But this is a, a huge step in the right direction. And even those other technologies will require batteries. So the more we can do to make it happen, first of all, and do it in a responsible way, and I think there's a lot of pressure, a lot of eyes on it to do it that way, the world's going to be better off. And I've been looking for, for some way to make an impact personally to leave the planet in better shape for my kids. And electrification really is going to help make that happen. John DeMaio, CEO of Graphics Technologies and president of Graphics Group, thank you for sharing your insights on this important material here on the Northern Miner Podcast. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Adrian. And thank you once again to John DeMaio and Graphics Technologies and the Graphics Group for joining us on this week's episode of the Northern Miner Podcast, a fascinating discussion on graphite and how important of a role it plays in the energy transition. Also coming up, we have the Northern Miner Global Mining Symposium in Toronto on May 25th. Just go to events.northernminer.com. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.